You may be seated, and I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And as you make your way there, I want to express my appreciation for uh, your value of church, that you value church enough a lot of times, even at the faintest hint of inclement weather, uh, you know, sometimes we'll, people will use that as an excuse, um, but I know sometimes people, it's dangerous and, and they don't want to drive that. I'm not saying you can't do that, but uh, all I'm doing is commending you for making uh, corporate worship a priority. We're in Matthew chapter 12. We're continuing our study through Matthew, and we want to look at this parable that Jesus teaches, and I think about uh, a lot of the ways in which we love a, a very modern idea. It, it, for most of us, it's something we may not even realize is an actually a fairly new concept, a new way of thinking. And it's a, a belief, it's a stance that many people in our culture think they hold, uh, but they really don't. It comes out of the Enlightenment, it comes out of really 17th, 18th century philosophy, and that is the idea that someone can be absolutely, completely neutral about something. This idea of objectivity, that, that we can read the Bible with no lens whatsoever, or that we can approach Jesus with no filter, right? And yet, it's, it's funny how we have this, this shift in the way we think as human beings where we believe that we could approach with no filter, no, what the big word, no presuppositions, no prior decisions that we've made and be totally and completely objective. We, we spent so long in our culture and in, and in modernity trying to operate as if there were no filter. And now we have phones where... For a lot, of time, a lot of people, that's all we do is we add filters. But when we think about this myth of neutrality, I, I want to give you a couple examples of how you are not as neutral as maybe you think. Okay, uh, If you know, last night was the ACC Tournament Championship. And I, and I have a, an approach to this that, that probably many of you share. Okay, So there are teams that I actively cheer for. Then there are teams I actively cheer against. And then there are teams that I just don't care. Uh, sometimes we're watching sports, we turn on the TV, we're watching football or basketball, and it's two teams that I could not care less who wins. And my sons ask me, you know, Dad, who do you want to win? And, and they like to pick, and, and they like to pick teams, and, and I just say, whoever, I don't care. I'm neutral about that. But even in that, that committed to being neutral and not caring, I've still made a commitment that I don't care about those things. So I'm not necessarily as neutral as I might think. You might try neutral parenting. You know, There's just some things we're going to wait and see. But even then, there's things as you're a parent that you're not neutral on, right? As a parent, I'm not, I was not neutral on potty training. Right? That's not something I wanted to approach with a we'll see what happens type of mentality or I don't care what happens mentality. So we, there are a lot of things where we think we're neutral, but as we examine it, we're really not. 
And the same is probably true for many people who would consider themselves, they're not anti-Jesus. They're not necessarily pro or you know, have a fervor or a passion about Jesus. They would say, I'm just kind of neutral. I don't have an, anti- an antagonism towards Jesus, but I also am not, I don't love Jesus. I'm not crazy about Jesus. But when you examine that foundation in and of itself, that is a decision, that is a commitment that that person has already made. And so we might think we have a neutral position on a lot of things, but when it comes to Jesus, we want to ask, is there such a thing as a neutral position? Is there a neutrality that you can kind of stand in the middle and not really have to do anything with Jesus? We started this section in Matthew in verse 22 with this, this event that Jesus heals a blind and mute man. And he was also demon-possessed. And there's, there's been a whole logic to the, to the section. I've tried to show you as we've gone through it. But very briefly, the miracle happened in verse 22. Jesus heals. Some Pharisees and scribes see this, and they attribute his work to Satan. Jesus is is described by the scribes and Pharisees. He's doing this by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, that's blasphemy of the Spirit. You need to be very careful because that is not a sin that can be forgiven. That work should not be attributed to Satan. But then he responds and goes further, and he says a response has to be made with Jesus. You either have to decide that his fruit is good and respond accordingly, or decide that his fruit is bad and respond accordingly. And then we saw last week that what Jesus says is the proper response to the work of the Spirit through Jesus Christ is to believe in Him. And the external fruit of that internal belief was repentance. So believe and repent. Now, we get to this next section. And we might say, the scribes and the Pharisees might be tempted to say, well, look, we don't necessarily believe and repent. But we also don't necessarily disagree that, okay, let's say for the sake of argument that what you're doing really is of God. Can we kind of stand somewhere in the middle? But this is where Jesus is so good at at seeing through and knowing the hearts of people. If Jesus really is, as we've talked about, our only hope and judgment, he's our only hope because we have no righteousness. We, We talked about how we have to have a perfect righteousness and the question is how do we get it can we demand it well that's what the scribes and the pharisees did can we create it no and last week we saw that there was jesus had these two responses the the queen of the south and the uh the sign of jonah these were parables or examples And so here Jesus gives one more final response to this idea of turning to him for salvation. And this week, as I said, I think Jesus uses one more illustration. He tells a parable, a story, a a metaphor about those who usually or who might look to Jesus and just go, I whatever or meh or I'm not for it or against it. I'm just kind of apathetic about it. That's the audience that Jesus, and the type of person that Jesus is addressing here. And what does he do? He tells a story. Look at verse 43. 
He says, when an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest, but doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and settle down there. And as a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. That's how it will be with this evil generation. And so Jesus is addressing, and he finally brings it to even, even, when you think about Jesus, you think he could not make a more finer point, and then right after that, he makes an even more distinct, finer point. What is going on in this story? Well, Jesus, remember, he's healed a demon-possessed man, and he says, look, the good that I have done him is good, but that's not all that needs to happen. He said, if you look at this demon-possessed man, if I did this, and if I did this for you, it would still not be enough. Because what could happen when an unclean spirit goes out of a person, it says it roams through waterless places looking for rest but doesn't find any. So there's there's something about a dry, arid uh, place, an uncomfortable place, a desperate place, a desert place that that a demon and an unclean spirit would look for it, it doesn't find any. And so it says, I'll go back to, now look at this. Notice how Jesus describes this unclean spirit. The spirit says, I'll go back to my house. So the issue here is one of ownership. Jesus can clean the house, but who owns the house, right? And so what Jesus is really getting to is people who, We have people in our culture, and we may have some even in our church right now, who you will love to get whatever you can from Jesus. You would love to have him clean your house. The house of your life, all all the rot and the filth, you would love to have him clean it, but you don't want to turn over the deed to your home. You'll take whatever you can get from him. But notice, that's not enough. Receiving a miracle, receiving a blessing, God doing something for you does not mean that he owns your house. So the Spirit says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. And returning, it finds the house. Now look how it's described. Vacant, swept, and put in order. How many of you wish you could do that? You could leave your home and come back and it's... It's vacant, maybe not vacant, but the, the idea of vacant means that it, it's been kind of rearranged and made to look like it's brand new. Not necessarily that there's nobody there, but vacant and swept and put in order. Everything's, I mean, moms, dads, I mean, that'd be awesome, right? Just leave the house, come back, all the toys are put away. I mean, that's a house you would want to go into, right? That'd be very inviting, and that's exactly what. The demon does, he goes in and he says he he sees everything put in order. But you know what that does for him? For us, we'd walk into a house like that and go, ah. For an unclean spirit to walk into a house and a a person like that is to say, no, 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 this is too clean. This is too messy. In fact, he needs help. So what does he do? He leaves and brings seven other spirits more evil than himself. So we're talking about an unclean spirit, but... 
he has people who are, he has uh, um, companions, we might say, who are even more evil than him. And he brings and they enter and they settle down there. And the implication is they undo everything that had been set in order. So think about what Jesus is saying is, I have healed this, this man who is demon possessed. But that's not the final solution. That's not what he really needs because what could happen? Another spirit could come with seven other spirits and make it just as worse. Just as bad or worse. And so that's why Jesus says, as a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. So he says, that's how it will be with this evil generation. What evil generation is he talking about? Well, if you go back to verse 39... He talks about this evil generation. He says, they demand a sign. An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given. So understand what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, look, you can receive things from me. You can receive blessings from me. But it's not enough if something doesn't fill up. If there's not a transfer of ownership. Just to give you a sneak peek... It's a, if you go to the next passage, verses 46 and following, it's not just a transfer of ownership, it's a transfer of family. Jesus says, who are my brothers and sisters? Those who do the will of my Father in heaven. So Jesus is saying, you can demand a sign, you can, you can stand there and not believe and not repent. You can still be blessed and receive good things from God. But it's not enough. It's not enough to be apathetic about Jesus. And so Jesus is addressing an extreme danger of attempting or thinking that you can be neutral towards him. That Matthew is saying there is a demand, there is a call, there is an expectation that you recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as Savior so Jesus wants, the, presumably the man is still there. We have no indication that he went anywhere, but the scribes and Pharisees are there too. Jesus wants the man who was liberated, along with everybody else that's there, to realize that freedom, for example, freedom from de demon possession is not enough. Ownership by the devil must be replaced with ownership by Christ. And how do we come to be owned by Christ? By believing and repenting. Otherwise, the release is only temporary. So Jesus is saying this, this moral reform, this what, have, what happened with this demon-possessed man, it may have had a temporary change. It may have been a temporary release. He may have changed his life a little bit, but but moral reform is not what saves this man. And if we're honest, a lot of us, and there is data to back this up. If you go look, you go Google, uh, State of Theology 2023. And you go look at a ministry called Ligonier Ministries, where they do a survey every year of what Christians claim to believe. Do it when, don't do it when you're in a good mood. Or maybe you should do it when you're in a good mood. Depending on how you handle your moods. But, but it's, it can be discouraging. You, you'll have people that deny that we are created 
uh, and have an, an original sin. They would deny the divinity of Jesus, a good portion of people who claim to be Christians. And if we're honest, there are a lot of people who think that the way I am saved is by my performance or by my deeds and what I do. It happened just this week, and you probably don't know this, but there's a group that came out, and they call themselves the New Protestants. And they released a video, and they said, we are convinced that it's not faith alone that saves, but also obedience like faith is what saves. That, it's, the, it's the same heresy wrapped up in a new dress and so, what, am I, what are we getting at here? What we're getting at is there is a fundamental understanding that has to take place that it's not enough just that something is removed from us. If God were to do something in our lives where our sin is removed, that our sin is forgiven, uh, the guilt is removed... We have to understand that what we're left with is not necessarily what will save us. In other words, we're still missing something. How can we be saved? What must we do with Jesus? Jesus says there's no neutral. And, and here... I, I'm afraid sometimes there may be some of us who think that not being anti-Jesus means that you are saved. But that's exactly what Jesus is trying to address. Being not anti-Jesus is not the same as saving faith. And so, to put it in, the, in the, the most simple and plain terms, let's assume this demon-possessed man was asking how to be saved. And he assumed, look, I had the demon removed, I've been healed, I should be saved now, right? It, it, all the things that afflicted me were removed. And Jesus says, no, because you still lack something. And what is it that he lacks? What is it that we lack? If we received tremendous amounts of blessings, if, if we believed in Jesus and our sins are forgiven, what else do we lack? And the very simple answer is righteousness. There's no mention of this man having a righteousness. And so not only do we need to have our sins forgiven, but we need a, a positive righteousness that is given to us and this is a righteousness that has to come from a perfect obedience to the law it has to come from a flawless life a life without sin and we certainly have no such righteousness and that's why we need to have our sins forgiven right so what we need is not just for the house to be emptied we need a new resident to move in we need a new owner we need something not just to make us empty, not just to remove the sin. And, and, and if we dug a hole, think about this. Your sin, your disobedience, your rebellion dug your own grave. And you're digging a hole and you're digging a hole. And now you're 30 feet in the ground. And God says, I forgive you. 
Okay, but what gets you out of the hole? What gets you from the bottom to the top? You need something to fill that hole. You need something to lift you. What we need is a righteousness that is not our own, but is given to us. It needs to be reckoned and deposited into our account. And the only way we can be declared righteous is if the perfect righteousness of Jesus is imputed. That's a, that's a very important word, imputed, put into our account. Credited to us, Christ's righteousness. So, so what should we conclude, really, from what Jesus is saying? It's not enough to have all the bad taken away, because if all the bad is taken away, we still don't have what is needed for for coming into God's presence and being with Him for eternity. So when we think about justification, how we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, justification is not only that God doesn't credit our sins to us, but that He also credits righteousness to us. It's a great exchange. Jesus takes our sins on the cross and He pays the penalty. The wages of sin is death. He dies in our place, and when we believe in Him, we repent and trust Christ. His righteousness is given to us. So what are, what are we saying? Listen, it's not enough to have your sins forgiven. Now stick with me. It's not enough to have your sins forgiven because we need a positive merit We need a positive righteousness. We need something reckoned to our account if we are to be declared just before a holy God. If if it was only our sins forgiven, we would have our sins forgiven, but we would still stand before God naked and empty and and as as a, a house that maybe had been put in order but have no new ownership. And that's why the gospel is such good news that by living a perfect life and dying an atoning death, Christ has merited perfect righteousness. And he credits this to all who place their faith in him. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that for our sake God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is why responding to Jesus with trusting faith matters. We said last week, you believe and you turn. But you're not believing and turning just for forgiveness. You're believing and turning so that the righteousness of Jesus might be deposited into your account. That you are under new ownership. And so how does this apply to us today? Well, Jesus is addressing those who would be we think they're neutral to Jesus but but for believers as we read this I think we can see very clearly that the the, really the big idea the main idea of this text is that a sinner's greatest need is not only healing not just forgiveness but a righteousness that can come only from Christ a sinner's greatest need is a righteousness that can come only from Christ. 
That's why there is no neutrality. If you could get that righteousness anywhere else, you could go to that person or that place. But for a believer, when we remember who you were in Christ, remember you weren't neutral. Understand that when Jesus died on the cross, what happened in the economy of God, the way God has set this up, that when Jesus died on the cross, he did not die to make you neutral. The, the Bible says that he saved his people through his death on the cross. Not made them savable, not made just salvation possible, but you were saved through Jesus' death and resurrection. You weren't neutral. And now in Christ, you, because of Christ, you weren't kind of... See, this is what we think, right? That, that I was anti, and then there's four... And Jesus did everything to get me right in the middle. And then it was kind of up to me. And I could have gone either way. And God had cast a vote for me. Satan had cast a vote against me. And I was the deciding vote. But what is Jesus saying? He says, even if he got you to neutral, that's not enough. And what happens is salvation, why is this such good news, is Jesus doesn't take us from anti to neutral. He takes us from all the way over here to all the way over here. That's why he gives us the faith and then we trust Christ and we're forgiven and that righteousness is imputed to us. And now we are under new ownership. And so you, before Christ, you weren't neutral but you trusted in Christ. You placed your faith in Him. What does it mean to place your faith in Christ? What, what did you do? It was a promise founded trust in Christ. And that righteousness was credited to you. So as a believer, when you, when you hear this, when you read this text, what it does is it shows us that we have all the assurance we need because of Jesus. That when he talks about this evil generation, we are not a part of that evil generation. Because God has done what needed to be done to make us not neutral about Jesus. So if you're a believer here, rejoice. Rejoice that God has done everything. That you are forgiven and his righteousness is given to you. That you're under new ownership. The more you understand what Jesus has done for you in your salvation, the more assured you become. Jesus says these Pharisees and these scribes thought they could be neutral. But if you're a believer here this morning and you say, I'm not neutral. I know that I have trusted Christ. That's because Christ has done that work in your life. The Spirit of God, the same Spirit that was at work here in this text that Jesus is talking about, did a work in your life so that you went from death to life. Not from death to neutrality, death to life. But for an unbeliever, what Jesus says to you this morning, maybe, maybe, you're, you, maybe you're not a Christian or maybe you think you're a Christian. And you think you're a Christian because you don't really have an antagonism 
You think, well, I was raised going to church. I remember going to church. My parents went to church. My mom and dad, were, my dad was a pastor. Mom was always serving in the church. Dad preached. Mom played the piano, whatever. But what I want you to hear this morning is that a neutrality to Jesus is really To think that you have no response to Jesus is a response to Jesus. There's no neutral. To think that you have a, a neutral position on Jesus is like thinking that it's a good idea to park your car at the top of Mount Everest and leave it in neutral. It's not going to stay there. There is no neutral when it comes to Jesus. And so my one thing I would say to you is that there is this picture in this passage of relief, of rest, of assurance, and Christians have that. But what I want you to see is Jesus says, believe in me, turn from your sins, believe in me. If you think you are neutral, that is not a sign of belief, but of unbelief. That, that's as plain as I can make it. Not doing anything with Jesus is doing something with Jesus. And it's a sign of your unbelief. And if you don't believe, the Bible says there's no salvation for those who don't believe and trust and rest in Christ. And so maybe you're here this morning and you need to trust Him you need to come to Him. You need to get off the fence that you think you're sitting on and finally decide, am I under His ownership? Am I trusting in Him? Or am I finally going to say, I, I don't believe it? If you come to Him today, there is relief. There is rest. There is assurance. There is hope. There is joy. But if you don't, you have none of that. And in fact, if you leave here still neutral, what Jesus says is your last condition will be worse than your first. There will come a day when your neutrality will cost you. It will put you in a position where your final, ultimate condition will be, last, uh, will be worse than where you are now. So... And be encouraged, believers. Be encouraged that God has done the, for everything for you to be forgiven, to give you His righteousness, to know that you are not neutral because of what God has done in your life. But if you're not a believer, don't wait. Don't stay neutral any longer. Come to Christ today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I come and, and Lord, I Lord,
Lord, I have a sense that I have not quite clearly communicated what it is that that you're trying to say in this this text and and God I, I, I just pray that you would help by your spirit, your people, to glean some kind of a truth and encouragement and conviction. Lord, we know that, uh, I know that your word goes out and you accomplish that which you send it for. And um, and Lord, sometimes we, when we're committed to walking through books of the Bible, we come to texts that are just, they're clear, but they're, but they're hard. And we have to do a little bit of legwork and Lord, I pray that the heart and the, the big idea of this text would take root in people's hearts. God, that the, the forgiveness that we need is ours in Christ, but also the righteousness, the righteousness we need is given to us in Christ. And when we believe and trust, God, we receive that forgiveness and that righteousness. So that we go from death to life, from, from being against you to being for you, to being not owned by you, to being your son and your daughters. So Lord, as we go out, uh, Lord, make clear, work on our hearts. Um, show us, God, whether we've, we've committed, I think we've been neutral to your, your way and your will. And God, help us to be quick to turn from that and to pursue obedience. Oh Lord, we thank you for Jesus, who is our great hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.